asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, Look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking about navigating the kind of crazy car market with Car Dealership Guy. Yeah, so Joel, this is the first anonymous person who we have interviewed here on the podcast, and actually for good reason, because the car dealership guy, CDG, that's how <laughs> what we're going to refer to him during this episode, but he has blown up on Twitter thanks to his insider knowledge, his consumer-friendly advice on automobiles. He started out on a car lot. He, he started out selling cars, uh, moved on to owning a dealership, and now he is the go-to guy when it comes to trends within the car market. He's got a podcast. He sends out car market insights to over 45,000 folks via his newsletter. And of course, we're excited to have him here on the podcast today. So CDG, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. CDG, we're so pumped for this. Uh, <laughs> I've been following you on Twitter, at, like it seems like everybody else these days, uh, for largely for those car buying insights. And there's just so much, so much interesting information that you're dishing out. Feels like every single day. But the the first question we ask everybody who comes on on the show, we want to know what they like to splurge on. Because Matt and I, we like to splurge on craft beer. We're drinking one now. And what what is that in your life? Like you're you're saving and investing for the future. What's one thing that you're like? Ah, eh, spend a little extra. This is my thing. Look, guys, I don't think I'm as interesting as you with uh, craft beer, but you know that that Pellegrino at Costco, man, it always gets me. Ooh. I walk by it, I'm like, I'm like, do I really need this, or Fancy can I use the soda guy. stream at home? <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I'm like, you know what? Let's splurge. You got to, got to get the glass, not the plastic bottles. Very important. Okay, so what is it? Does the glass Pellegrino? Does it just make you feel that much classier? Like, well, <laughs> do you stick your pinky me... out while you're drinking it? <laughs> not quite, not quite. But hey, it tastes good. Well, I do like that. I heard you say Soda Stream as well. So, do you also do that at home? Just when you're feeling more like the common man, do you uh, you fire up the Soda Stream? But when you're feeling extra fancy, bust, bust <laughs> yeah. out the glass. Definitely have a Soda Stream. I think it's also this like evolution with money in my own life where. 
there's certain things, like you said, like, what do you splurge on? Like, go five years, a decade ago, I would have never purchased a Pellegrino store. Like, I just wouldn't have done it. It was just against my nature. But I feel like as you, you know, you get a bit more comfortable over time. I'm still very frugal in nature. But for me, like, there's like little things where I, I just... I, I got to get that Pellegrino bottle, man. I don't know nice. what to tell you. I, it hey. makes me feel good. So no, hey, yeah, no, I love it. I love it. No hate at all. I mean, we all have our different splurges and you know, to us, it might seem we like a encourage. waste of money. We want to encourage those splurges, <laughs> but I, right? I love that you do it. And Just you like know yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. All right, well. Enough about sparkling water. <laughs> CDG, let's, let's talk about the just the car market. Let's start with recent history. Can you give us basically like the Cliff Notes version, uh, if you don't mind, of just what happened over the past few years and both to the new and the used car markets during COVID and, and honestly, and just why everything just still feels so out of whack today? Yeah, I mean, look, the car business has gone through the most just transformational period in the last three years than it has in the prior 20 or 30 years. And 30 years ago, I wasn't in the business. Uh, but I can tell you that what and when lockdown started around, you know, March 2020, we simply shut down supply chains. And that had just ramifications on used car supply that we haven't experienced before. And so for the, for the first time ever, you know, all these dynamics started changing. Interest rates were at record lows or, you know, all, all time lows, really. And we started entering a new phase in the new used car markets. Now, let's let's sort of fast forward and talk about what has happened over the last three years. New car supply, you know, really dwindled over the last couple of years. We underproduced 8.6 million cars. So what does that mean? It means that we pretty much, you know, undersold 8.6 million cars that I would have made it otherwise onto the streets of America. Um, now, that 8.6 million that I mentioned, some of that has been outweighed by people simply keeping their cars longer. I actually just posted about the fact that the average used car on the road today is, 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 is nearing 14 years, wow. which is a record. Yeah, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. But still, you don't just make up an 8.6 million vehicle deficit by you know extending the lifespan of certain cars, right? Something has got to give, and what gives? Well, prices. Prices go up because you know you have you have less supply in the market, and so that's sort of what happened on a new side. You know, we saw a period where uh, cars were selling above MSRP all across the board. You know, certain cars five, ten, fifteen thousand above their you know asking price. Um, and even more in certain cases, you have highline luxury vehicles selling for a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand over crazy stuff. Really, wow. yeah, like those G wagons that Joel's been <laughs> the G wagons. Yeah. yeah, the ones I love <laughs> talking about. I got that kind of money, so <laughs> no, I'm not looking there. Well, okay, so in Cox Automotive, like a lot, everyone's got an opinion. But Cox Automotive, when they give an opinion, you listen because they've had so much like uh, longevity in in the car space. They say the car market won't normalize until 2026. Is is that accurate from your estimation? Is like the the crazy hijinks and the escalating prices and the fact that cars continue to appreciate uh, against kind of normal money gravity advice? Like, is is that is that going to continue for the foreseeable future? Yeah. So so that essentially brings me to the use side, and and the reason is because new car supply has pretty much rebounded, not across the board. Asian brands are still struggling. Domestic brands, you know, are doing much better, and they have, um, you know, the car the lots are filled. Incentives are coming back. Um, so new cars are doing well. Uh, why, why did Cox Automotive say that? Well, they said that because it's going to take time for 
it's going to take time for the market to normalize. If you think that, you know, the average lease is around three years, right? The last couple of years, we, we did not lease nearly as many vehicles, right? It was leasing was down about 50% over the last couple of years versus what was, you know, historically, we were leasing about one in three cars that were being sold. And so you had less new cars entering the used market. And so now you're in a situation where, you know, you have fewer used cars, that are being returned to, to dealers, right? Because they didn't lease Summit over the last couple of years. They actually purchased their lease that they had already leased for, from the years priors. And you just find yourself in a situation where you need to time to let the market cycle. And so, yes, I think that, you know, conceptually, we, don't, we can't predict the future, of course, but it does make sense to think that we will start to see some normalization within a couple of years. I like to hear that. Well, so you, you, you mentioned how it, it seems like used cars on the road, they were essentially nearing that 14 year mark. Is that solely because of the fact that it's been required of folks, right? <laughs> the fact that there has been such uh, a limited supply in the cars that we could buy that folks are being forced into keeping their cars on the road longer. Is it that or is it also the fact that the technology has just gotten better and cars are essentially just lasting longer on the road? Um, is it both of those? Is it one yeah. more than the other? So it's definitely, a, it's a function of both of those, right? Because look, cars are better, it's cheaper to fix and stuff like that. Like there are ways that, you know, they are lasting longer. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but you can't ignore the fact that like lease return rates plummeted 83% over the past three years, right? Everyone kept their lease. Everyone was in the money, right? Everyone's car was suddenly worth more. And so again, all these different pieces of like the car age life cycle that extends the average that extends the average age of the average car on the road. And if you look at the last couple of years, you see that there's this spike of average age on the road, right? So it's not like a linear growth of average age over the last decade. Rather, the last couple of years, you suddenly see a spike because people need, they can't afford these new cars. Interest rates are so high and everyone is trying to do whatever they can to extend the lifespan of their vehicle. Okay, so you said that it seems like that the Asian... Asian cars, so like Toyotas and Hondas, I, I assume, is maybe maybe the key is as well that they're struggling to keep up with supply. Why is that? Are, are folks gravitating towards some of those manufacturers because of their reputation, just because of the fact that some of the longest lasting cars on the road today are Toyotas and Hondas? I mean, that Telluride's <laughs> so hot right now. <laughs> yeah, the Telluride is just, I mean, everyone wants a Telluride. They, Kia's done a tremendous job on rebranding over the last, you know, Real, again, decade or so. Mm -hmm. uh, but look, I would say it's Toyota, Kia, Lexus, Honda. They are absolutely by far leading with the lowest day supply, which just means, you know, what is the su available supply in the market of those cars that would take or in how many days will it will enough buyers based on current demand just deplete the supply in the market? Right. Yeah. So there's like 20 to 35 day supply for the cars I just mentioned. That's not a lot. Right. Healthy day supply is typically around, say, like 50 to 60. Um, on the flip side of that, you're seeing on the other end of the spectrum that, you know, brands like Chrysler, Volvo, Buick, Jeep, uh, Dodge, they have much higher day supply. In some cases, as high as like 130, 140 day supply. Mm. And so those lots are filled, you know, incentives are, are, are you know, are, grow, are increasing and you're just seeing that they're not moving as quickly. And of course, it's a function of two major things. Demand is number one, right? Yes. More people want to get the Sienna over the Pacifica, right? Like people, people want Asian brands for, you know, their, their reliability and, you know, various other reasons. 
But the second thing is supply. I mean, like Toyota specifically, it's funny because I, I had the same question and I spoke with the chief economist of Cox Automotive, John Smoke, the other day uh, on, on my podcast, actually. And I said, John, I said, why, like what, Toyota, you know, the cream of the crop when it comes to manufacturing, what is going on? And the reality is that they just got, you know, battered in so many different ways uh, from the pandemic, from the lockdowns, um, you know, from their, from their manufacturing facilities overseas. They had to deal with a lot more issues and just simply were not able to rebound as quickly or effectively as many of the U- domestic U.S. brands have. Hmm. Got it. Okay. Why? <laughs> Why don't they make inexpensive new cars anymore? Like uh, we we've seen almost the average price of a new car going up to like what forty eight thousand dollars, and it seems like there's almost Correct. no new cars available with a sticker price under thirty k, and and they're just going extinct like the dodo bird over and over. Like the Chevy Bolt is one of those where it's like, hooray, finally a cheap used electric or a cheap new electric vehicle, and then boom, Chevy says, and they kill it. Yeah, we're killing it. <laughs> it no longer. So why in the world can nobody uh, continue to manufacture? Why is it all just real? We're, we're just pushing up the price. We're getting more and more expensive models. I think what the manufacturers have realized is that. You know, the more expensive models, the, the new car is, it feels like it's becoming just like a luxury good, right? These mm-hmm. more expensive models have higher margins. Uh, they're just more profitable for the manufacturers. Consumers want to pay for the upgrades, the ones that can afford it, of course. And so, you know, conceptually, I call this like, it's truly the manifestation of like a K-shaped recovery, where you have people that are are you know better financial means they're able to buy these new cars and the, you know people that are lower middle class or below they just have to settle with you know a cheaper used car and so one thing to note is that you mentioned increasing uh, car prices right and i want to say that we hit our we hit peak car prices late last year or so but what you're seeing is that since that point, it's slightly been coming down, of course, as, as supply has been rebounding. But I don't want to gloss over the fact that in December, you had one in six car buyers uh, pay over $1,000 a month for their car. Yeah. One in six car buyers. Now, again, why, why, why? Well, it's a function of m- many things, but like you said, cars are simply more expensive. People want more well-equipped and feature-filled vehicles. People are buying lots of trucks and these bigger vehicles, right? There's a mm-hmm. lot of appetite for that for the US consumer. And let's not forget that interest rates are at multi-decade highs. Your, av- your, your new car interest rate nowadays, the average in the US is like 9%. Wow. And your interest rate for used cars is 14%. And so put all these things together, it's just a recipe for expensive, you know, higher priced. And, you know, it's it's really a bleak reality for many people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about buying new cars, uh, in particular from dealerships, CDG. Like, what do folks need to know about negotiating, about getting a better price if uh, they are in the market for a new car? I guess don't buy a Honda or Toyota is the first thing, maybe? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, look, I, they supply and just overall supply in the market is a huge driver of negotiability, right? Like, if that's even a word. Uh, but negotiation, <laughs> sure. you know, power, call it, whatever. So, so 100 um, days supply <laughs> of Jeeps. So should we all be driving Jeeps? Should we be looking to the Pacificas <laughs> rather than the Siennas? Look, I'm not going to say that the, the CDG bump is real, but I'm also not, not going to say that it's not real. Uh, and I'll tell you what I'm referring to. In, this, in January, I want to say, I tweeted about Buicks. And I was like, yo, I was like, these Buicks are like, the day supply is out of hand. They're rotting on car lots like trash. You can, you can pick one up if you're willing to suffer the embarrassment of being seen in one. Now, it was meant to be like satire and a joke, yeah, but it was joke. true. Yeah, like Buicks, yeah. I mean, they're very, they were, you know, leading the market with day supply. And that tweet got like 6 million views. Now, you know, within a couple of months now, Buicks, you know, have come down in day supply. But the point is that, yes, like people were getting good deals on Buicks, right? Because there was a lot of supply in the market. 
and the manufacturers need to get these things off their balance sheet. They got to get them out. They got to sell them. And how do you sell? Well, you lower the price with incentives. Yeah. Okay. So talk to us about incentives and negotiating and MSRP and stuff like that. Like as uh, let's say one of a how to money listener says, I, you know, we, we often suggest we want a lot of our listeners to look towards used cars, but we'll get to used cars in a second. And my just terrible time trying to buy one. But talk to us about that. Like how, how do people think about MSRP day supply when they're kind of putting together a formula and a process for what car they're going to shoot for, how to talk to a dealer, do they email before heading on to the lot? Like wh- what are all those little factors that are going to help them get a better deal for the car they want? Yeah. So look, nearly 100% of consumers nowadays do some form of research before coming into the dealership. Like it's pretty mind boggling when you think that it's not 80%, 85%, it's nearly 100%, it's like 95 plus. Mm -hmm. And so people are coming, people are in many cases are much more well-informed than the salespeople at the dealership. And really what's important is that, you know, of course, do your research beforehand. There's plenty of resources online to learn about the vehicle you want, to learn about manufacturing, you know, incentives and offerings and whatnot. Start the process via text, start the process via phone call, email, right? Start speaking with numbers with the, with the salesperson or the dealership. Understand what is the, you know, what are they offering? What can they really do before you get to the dealership? That's just the best practice. And that's what I would tell, you know, my mom if she was shopping for a car. But then once you're at the dealership, it is important, like there's certain things that you can do to, you know, sweeten your deal or make a dealer more inclined to want to deal deal with you, right? And so some of those things are like a big one is a trade-in, right? Dealers need cars. They need, you know, quality you know, used vehicles to go and resell. And if you can give the dealer an opportunity to, to double dip, right, which is really make, you know, make two sales by getting your trade-in and then retailing that again, then yes, you, you may get a much better deal. The dealer may even sell you the car on, you know, close to a loss if they really want your trade-in. And so the trade-in is a very, very important negotiation tool that you should mm. consider. The second thing I'd say about a trade-in, which is why it's, it's such a good tool in this, you know, when you're buying a car, is that many lenders actually be- provide better financing options when consumers are trading in their vehicle. And the reason they do that is because you know the lenders have all these risk models. And if you're trading in your vehicle, that tells me as a lender that you're actually you know, again, hypothetically less risky as a as a as a as a customer because you're 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 gonna rely on this vehicle, right? It's not like you have two vehicles and you you know, maybe you can stop making payments on one and keep the other, but I am your only means of transportation. And so, you know, trading in a car to a dealership is a great way to really get great negotiation leverage and ultimately, you know, likely get a better deal when you're buying a car. Interesting. Yeah, because typically when you think about trading into a dealership, you're expecting to get less money, right? I think a lot of folks, I mean, that's the way I think. I'm thinking, all right, if I can take, if I can clean this bad boy up, take some really good pictures of it, list it myself as a, as a private seller. Well, literally when you go to kellyblubook.com. The idea is that I'm going to be able to get more for it. Yeah. You see a difference between private, uh, private sale price and trade-in price. And so the value is, is typically reduced, right? When you trade in a vehicle. Yeah. But it's not quite, it's not really true anymore because I think or I would say, I don't know if that was ever fully true across the board. Hmm. Because like I said, there's just so much value now in the, in these last couple of years for dealers with getting trade-ins because you just can't source these cars yeah. on in hmm. auctions. And then the second thing is you have to think as a consumer, like it also depends what state you're living in, right? Like many states, you can get a trade-in tax credit. And so when you just sell a car, Right, you've paid taxes on that car, and now you're selling it, and you, you lose that tax that you paid, even though you didn't drive that car till it's worth nothing. And so, when you, you trade in a car, you can also get trade in tax credit, which is just you know you're applying the taxes that you paid for the current car onto the new car that you're buying, and that saves you money as well. 
which is nice. true here in the state of Georgia. We used to pay every single year a certain percentage, but now it's nope, all up front at once. And so you do, yeah, when you trade in, you do get that tax. You're not stuck with nice. that massive ad valorem like right. what we used to have. Yeah. But when, I mean, that, I'm glad you mentioned that, though, because I think typically I've always viewed the trade in as a very negative option. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact that you could potentially get better financing from the dealership, the, the potential for the tax credit. But then also, if you have the ability to get a better price for the the vehicle that you're looking to buy from that dealership, it yeah, it's definitely worth running the numbers and, and considering. I'm, I'm glad you, you brought know, that up. I'll, I'll tell you something, though. Like, used cars are really not marked up um, or it's like really razor thin margins, right? Like you have some dealers that are marking up used cars like five to 7%. You have other dealers that are, you know, maybe a higher volume operations that are more focused on selling the, we call them backend products, like warranties, insurance and stuff. They're marking their cars up like 3%. Um, some are even selling them at break even or close to a loss just to get you to buy the warranties. And so, you know, now the one thing to note, of course, is that that 5% could be a thousand dollars, not you know fifty, and so on a on just like a nominal basis, yes, there's some meat on the bone there. But you know, negotiating the price of a used car, it's already pretty much marked. The the price of the car is, is typically pretty competitive because remember, dealers are competing with every other dealer on these listing sites. Typically, the parts that are more like opaque and where it's just harder to compare and the margins are significantly higher, say forty to sixty percent, are on the warranties and insurance products, what we call mm. the back end. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. We've got more to get to. We want to talk about negotiating uh, maybe more than just the price. We also want to talk about what's going on in the used car market and the private sale market. We'll, we'll get to some questions, some more questions with Car Dealership Guy right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. And now a word from the show sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. 
That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we are back from the break talking with car dealership guy and CDG. We were just talking about buying from a, a car dealership. So as you're kind of going through the haggling process, you're trying to negotiate. If you're not able to get the you know the sticker price down some, are there other options? Are there other benefits that you could p- perhaps negotiate into the package? Maybe like I'm thinking of fruit uh, oil changes for life or like or the, uh, the, the undercarriage spray or, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> like, are there other options for what you could get out of a sale if you are buying from a, a dealership? Yeah, look, I, I think that there you can always, you know, throw in like, like for example, uh, an extra key, stuff like that. Like a dealer will not tell you no, unless it's like a Audi, brand new Audi key that's like, you know, $700. Like, that's, that's oh, a problem. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, dealers, look, they're going to want to do the deal. And, you know, it's kind of a cost of doing business. Don't throw those things in for the most part, you know, sort of at the GM's discretion in many cases. What okay. I would say is like the best thing to do here is to really structurally get the best deal. You've got to just focus on what has the most supply on the new side. And interestingly enough, though, right, like that's sort of now translating to the use side as well, because what we're seeing is that the new cars that are have increased in supply the most, well, you have to think that the prices on those cars are falling the fastest. And used car dealers that have the comparable use version of that new car are now facing a weird situation. They're saying, hmm, I'm selling you know, a Jeep that's like three years old, but a new Jeep now is not that much more expensive than the car I'm offering, or maybe it's even almost the same price. Mm-hmm. And so now what I have to do, well, I have to discount that car as well. And so again, if you want to find a good deal on the used market on a you know three to four year old car, just look at the new market and see what has the most supply and what has the best incentives, and then follow that to the used market. And that's where you'll have you know a higher likelihood of getting a good deal. Kind of like how those nice Tesla price cuts resulted. And in- I was just going to say that. Like yeah. Tesla was the epitome of this where they dropped prices in January like 20%. And overnight, you know, you All had dealers. Yeah, yeah. the new ones. And you had like dealers doing fire sales and trying mm-hmm. to just get them, get rid of them as soon as possible because everyone was scared. It was like, oh my God, like the car just fell like 20% in price. I'm losing my pants right now. And yeah. it was, uh, it was, it was not good. That was a very, you know, tough <laughs> moment for many dealers. A lot of people lost a lot of money. I bet. Um, but it was an interesting case study nonetheless. <laughs> All right, talk to me about buying uh, your car dealership guy. So you know all about like buying and selling uh, from a dealership standpoint, but talk to me about buying and selling from an individual level. Uh, you talked about trading in, but uh, I mentioned before we started, recent Fender Bender, my 2006 Odyssey, sadly bit the dust, and I upgraded to uh, a 2013 Honda Odyssey. It is so much more plush, by the way, but I there was so little inventory from like a, a direct individual private seller. I was looking on AutoTrader, Craigslist, Facebook, and I had to just be super patient and wait for weeks for the right thing to come along. So 
uh, why it, it just seems like there's fewer individuals selling their cars now. Everything's going online. People are selling direct to some of the like CarMaxes or Carvanas that will that will make that direct purchase. Is that the case? Is it is it selling person to person just a thing of the past? So a lot has changed with private party sales, right? Like I actually partnered up with a company called Private Auto that basically what they do is they're trying to streamline the private sale process where they're trying to make it like a fintech, right? Where you truly like you sell a car and you're transferring the money like Venmo. Hmm. Um, And the reason for that is because, you know, the private sale is very clunky. It's you have to, you know, meet a stranger, you know, do the whole test drive mm-hmm. thing, you know, hope that their check doesn't bounce, maybe accept like $10,000 of cash. It's like very weird. It's a very yeah. manual um, process. That's true. People, no, I, people, I felt that. Yeah. Now you also have to ask yourself another two things, right? Like who is typically the candidate that wants to sell their car privately and who's the candidate that typically wants to buy privately? It's people that are really looking to, you know, save, save on every buck, every dollar. And that's okay. But when you have that, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But when you have that type of situation, you know, that's essentially the, the target market. And, you know, it just, again, it creates a dynamic where, you have to. We have to really check that car well. Make sure that you're 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 not going to pay that much below uh, what the you know quote unquote dealer marketplace is. Uh, you may find a deal here and there, but you know in today's market it's so competitive it's unlikely. And the reason for that is because Carvana, CarMax, and all these other companies have truly made the sales process just so frictionless. Today, yeah. you want to sell a car online, you just boom pop it into Carvana, CarMax, whatever. You get an offer on the spot, and yeah. in many cases they even pick it up from your house within a couple of days. Sure. And so this is fundamentally change the dynamic and then you on top of all this just add the fact that dealers more than ever are competing for your car as well right we buy cars we buy cars you see it at every dealership nowadays because everyone needs cars and so the private market has just gotten squeezed in many you know many different directions there's still a lot of opportunity there but i think that you know it's much more you know having to trying to figure out how to really streamline that transaction most people are not like you and they are just selling to like one of the big companies even though that they might get a little bit less when they do that yeah, understatement of the year. Most people are definitely not like me, CDG. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm you're you're I'm very hired. special. You're very, very special. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, so one of the things I kept running into, by the way, when I was trying to to buy this this used car was like individual car brokers. And I just couldn't figure out the angle on that. I, I, they, they kept making it seem like they were an individual private seller, but then they were like, they would reveal the fact that they were a broker, an auto broker. And I just, I felt uncomfortable with that. I wasn't sure how to proceed. What, what is the car broker game and how should like an individual buyer navigate that? Yeah, this, this is sort of a murky topic because, you know, everyone, like different people can claim they're a broker and like you don't really know what they're doing and what's their involvement. I can tell you that like with leasing, there's many brokers and, you know, they get some allocation from, you know, like car out, vehicle allocation from uh, new car dealers, franchise dealers, and then they go and lease those cars. And, you know, they get some, you know, it's almost like an affiliate. They get some kickback on, on the cars that they lease for the dealer. Now, on a, on a used car broker or like, you know, just a general car buying broker, again, it's, it's, a very, it's a very niche business, very boutique. Like this isn't something that you can really scale effectively in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And the reason again is because, you know, you have to figure out like at the end of the day, you as a broker, you wanna go, or if you're gonna go through the hassle truly as a broker, not as a sales guy that works at a dealership and claims you're a broker, but if you wanna go through the hassle and all that and, and spend the time and really why is someone going through you? Well, they're going through you because they want to A, not deal with the headache and you know spend the time and B, they trust you that you'll get them a better deal because 
because of your insider knowledge or connections. Well, you know, it's just tough to make the economics work as a true broker where, you know, they can make enough money, you can save enough money, you know, everyone is happy. Um, needless to say, I think in many states, it's, it's even illegal. But yeah, I mean, brokering is a thing. It's typically very boutique and niche. Everyone, you know, has a different definition for what a broker really is, but it's just not, it's not like, you know, real estate where, you know, there's a lot of meat on the bone, you know, 3%, 2%, whatever of a sales price that you can get here. We're dealing with like very low margins Mm. and, and, you know, we're not selling a million dollar product, right? We're selling a 10, 20, 30, $40,000 product. So I just think it's a, it's a tough type of a business to scale and even, you know, do unless you're willing to, you know, do it for pretty, pretty low return as a broker. Right. Yeah. So from a the service you're providing, it doesn't sound like the margins are very thick. <laughs> but from yeah. a just from a consumer end standpoint, like do you is is there the ability to go with a broker and potentially buy? Because oftentimes aren't these brokers buying their cars from uh, from the different auto auctions where they're able to get you know get these cars at a really low price? Is there the ability for a consumer to get a car from a broker uh, at a pretty pretty discounted price? And at that point, you're just a dealer, right? Like if that broker is buying a car at an auction for you, you're, it's literally a dealer. The okay. only difference is that you've made a specific request for a car. Now, mm. different dealers will treat that differently. Like many dealers, you know, will buy you that car, source you that car, as long as, you know, you put a deposit, you're pre-approved for financing. Right. Um, and then again, they'll charge you like a normal markup as they would on that car, maybe a little bit less. Uh, but essentially, you're a dealer at that point. If you, as a you know, you take a specific request for a car, then you become a dealer. Now, the, again, one other thing to note here is that it's it's a very tough business to scale. We've actually tried it. I've tried it uh, okay. because you know people like then you're a consumer, right? Like you want to know what you're buying. You're not a yeah. dealer. Like you're just not going to be as comfortable saying yes. I'll spend fifty thousand dollars on a vehicle that I have no idea what it's going to look like or anything about it. And as a dealer at an auction, you have like what, like, you know, 15 seconds to make a decision. I don't have time to like, yo, Joel, check this out. Look at this picture. Like, I don't have time to do that unless, you know, we look at it beforehand. But again, very, very clunky process. And I just think that the true definition of a car dealership or a broker um, and the way it works best is for like high-end cars. Like if you're just like someone like, yo, like I want that G-Wagon. I needs to be perfect. <laughs> Go find it for me. I'll pay you $15,000, $10,000. Just find me exactly what I want. I think mm-hmm. that's the only case where like being a broker in this business truly can work. Okay. That being said, you mentioned process and the how easy or difficult it can be. And buying a car online is something you've if you'd have told somebody 15 years ago, yeah, people are just going to buy it sight unseen. They'll kick the tires thing. They're not going to kick the tires before they buy it. But you would have like been looked at like you were crazy, right? Uh, like, uh, and so Carvana has changed the game on that front. CarMax has kind of followed suit. And do you feel like the online buying experience is serving consumers well these days? I think it is. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think there's a subsect of consumers that like to buy online and don't want to go into the dealership. The data and surveys still show that most people do want to come to the dealership, at least to like complete the sale. And so they want to do a, a lot of, a big part of the purchase online, but they don't want to do it all, right? They do want to come. They want to have some point of contact. Um, they want to test drive that car on the dealership premises and all that. And so I think that, you know, the market for online car buying is, is here. It's going to keep growing um, more so in new than used, I think. I just, you know, I think like you see like the Tesla model and whatnot, it's so easy to buy that car online. It's new. You don't have to worry about condition or anything. And we also, we've invested, you know, heavily in the online car buying process at our, at our dealership. I can tell you that we have sort of retracted a bit in, uh, in you know, most recently, more recently, 
and you know a function of again just becoming more efficient with how we're spending our you know marketing dollars and just you know um, streamlining our process internally but i can tell you that online car buying is here it's here to stay carvana has built a very you know a great car buying experience uh, for that online car buyer it's not perfect they have their challenges they scale super quickly and they have many challenges in many states especially when it comes to like titles and registrations and whatnot but overall it's 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 definitely you know it's grown like crazy and i think we're going to see it continue to grow over the coming years yeah i, I think with the seven day warranties or even 30 is it 30 day with with carmax but they've got those massive windows yeah. that allow you to just try it out so I, it's 30 to return and i believe it's a 90 day warranty which is part warranty. i was Correct. if i had Correct. not found this one car that i was looking for from a private seller i was going down the carmax route yeah <laughs> and for for us i mean like six years ago or whenever it is that we bought our our odyssey like that's what gave me the comfort to know that all right i can totally give this a shot and if it doesn't yeah. work out i can absolutely take it back but i you know, one of the advantages of looking for a car online, I think, is the ability to to find the best deal, which might not even actually be in your city or, or even your state. Like it might be in a different part of the country. <laughs> and so does it just come down to crunching the numbers and, you know, seeing if it makes sense to have a car shipped to you? Because oftentimes they've got, you know, they've got a, a fee associated with that or even to like buy a, a one way flight, buy a plane ticket <laughs> in order to fly there, buy the car and drive back. Does it just come down to crunching the numbers and seeing if that makes sense to snag that deal? I think it's crunching the numbers, but it's also what type of vehicle are you looking for? Are you looking for like a three-year-old Nissan Altima where you can find them anywhere throughout the country? Right. <laughs> or are you looking for like a five-year-old Audi RS, like, you know, blah, 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 whatever, right? Like a specialty car. Mm. I think the more you go specialty, the more it makes sense to source far and wide, you know, to maybe fly to go pick up that car or maybe, you know, arrange transportation, especially, and, and by the way, even if we're not talking specialty in this age of like, you know, markups and whatnot, in many cases, it does make sense to you know buy the vehicle somewhere else and have it transported. If the markup is five thousand and you buy it and have it transported for you know two thousand, you still won. You're still in the money, and so I think that's truth. I, I don't think it makes much sense for you know your bread and butter cars. You know, like your, your Honda Civics or Toyota Camry or whatever. I think those cars, you know, the ones that are in just higher supply and they're pretty much the same across the board, barring some you know features, colors and all that. Those are the ones that you can really find them anywhere. It's just unlikely gonna, you know, it's not likely gonna make sense for you to spend a couple grand on transporting them, especially if you're buying used. Okay, this is a question I feel like you're gonna be able to uh, knock out of the ballpark here. There are different tiers of dealerships, am I right? And when we talk about, there's like the buy here, pay here dealerships, which to me, are, uh, I don't know, a little more tenuous. M many of them come with a less than stellar reputation attached. So what should, what should people know before they just venture, venture into the newest car lot that's closest to their house to start looking? Yes. So there's definitely different types of dealerships. They all cater to different consumers. Predominantly, right? This is not perfect, but predominantly you see that buy here, pay here caters to really the lower end of the market. So like lower income, really just battered credit, people that just need like a new beginning and they're willing to pay up for it. And they do pay up for it. Like yeah. it's the most expensive across the board, but you know, also I mean, the if, if the average used car interest rate is something like 14% at a buy here, pay, pay here, it's got to be in the upper 20s, right? Yeah, if the state allows it, right? Like some states limit it at like 21 or 24 or, you know, some state, some states can go up to 30, I, I want to say. So yes, uh, you're going to pay the higher echelon of, 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 of uh, interest for sure. Uh, but also, you know, that dealer or that lender is just taking a lot more risk, right? Because uh, you're more like more than likely not you're going to have that car repossessed or you're going to default on your loan at some point. So that's 
sort of priced for that. Uh, the second thing is if you look at just your traditional used car dealer, so not buy your payer, they don't do their own financing, they don't do their own lending, right? They're partnered like with the bigger lenders, all, all the publicly traded you know, lenders, household names that you and I both know. Um, they predominantly serve a more, call it uh, middle-class buyer. Sometimes they skew a bit more subprime. Uh, they could again if they have if, if they go very specialty they might go for a different type of consumer. It really it's really driven by your geography and the inventory you carry, right? Because if I'm only carrying like you know trucks, then yeah, I'm going to sell to people that can afford trucks, want used trucks, and that's kind of my niche. If I'm selling you know more of like these like bread and butter economy cars, then I may you know skew. And if I'm in the right geography, towards a more near subprime consumer that sort of shopping financing and not so much the car, right? They need to get approved for a loan and the car is kind of secondary. But then you have the third tier of dealerships, which is the franchise dealer. Um, and even, even then, not every franchise dealership is equal, but they mm. tend to attract the more higher credit. Um, you know, whether you're buying new or certified pre-owned, you know, it's typically you're getting just a better, a more qualified customer, a better credit customer. Um, and that's, you know, they're sort of cornering the rest of the market that way. So it really comes down to, look, every single type of dealer can be a good dealer. I want to be very clear about that. Like we started, you know, as a small used car lot and we grew. And in many cases, you know, we found out through benchmarking through our lenders that like we were, we had better processes, better systems in place than franchise dealers down the street. Mm. Um, so you really have to read reviews, ask friends questions, uh, you know, referrals that is. And just really do your homework to find a good quality operation, whether it has the franchise shingles or not. You want to just find somewhere that's reputable, somewhere that's been in business for many years in, in many cases, right? You know that they, you know, they care about their long-term reputation. And ultimately, I think, you know, you should shop for the reputation of the dealership, less so the, the brand name, because that's how typically you'll get the best experience. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, uh, but it make, makes a lot of sense. So- I told you he was going to knock that one out of the park. That was good. <laughs> Um, I'm curious. So you mentioned certified pre-owned. Is it a good deal for the consumer or is it more of a good deal for the dealership? Like, yeah. Is there <laughs> is, a big markup for Is there a little? big markup there or is that actually a great way to get a, a vehicle that's been looked over and it's a, a service that the dealership is able to provide because they have done a lot of the work. You know that you, you're going to be getting a, a solid vehicle that's backed by a, you know, essentially a, a used car warranty. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, CPO, it depends It depends what brand you're buying from. Um, and I'm not an expert on CPOs because, you know, all the programs are very different. Uh, but ultimately with CPO, right, like they're basically telling you, hey, we're reconditioning this to a specific standard, like a you know pretty high standard. And by the way, like you said, you're getting this like extended warranty with it or you have, you have the option, you know, some some better, more robust options to insure the car, you know, thereafter. I think CPO is good. Um, I don't, and yes, it, you know, there's a small markup associated versus a non-CPO car. So if a dealer can CPO a car, they may choose to do so. A franchise dealer, that is, you know, they have to pass certain qualifications and whatnot. Does it does um, it just have to be a certain quality? Like, does it need yeah, to have a like there's, below a certain number of miles? What's the yeah, requirements? Yeah, certain standards. You know, like tire tread depth, uh, brakes. You know, stuff like that. Um, so it's it just a certain standards. But again, if you're purchasing. Uh, if you're purchasing from a very reputable used car dealer, then they may recondition their car at the same uh, to the same standards as a CPO. And so I think it, again, it, it it really it comes down to you know what's more important to you. If if you want the peace of mind, just go CPO. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, you may pay a little bit more because it says CPO. But you know if there's a, a car from another reputable reputable dealer, and you know you take a good look at it, maybe even show it to your mechanic, then yeah, you could fare out the same way, exact way by buying mm-hmm. non CPO, you know, late model, low mileage used vehicle. Sure. 
Okay. All right, CDG, we got just a few more questions to get to with you. Want to talk about leasing? Want to talk about electric vehicles? We'll get to, to questions on both of those things right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, we're back from the break. We're still talking about navigating the pretty crazy uh, car market with Car Dealership Guy. There's just uh, so much that's changed in the last couple of years. I love getting the backstory. But I specifically want to ask you about leasing. Something we always say, like you're coming from a different perspective, right? As, a, as, as someone who has worked in the car industry, Matt and I, as money nerds, have always talked about leasing in a mostly negative way. It's more of a, a lifestyle decision than a financial one. How true is that in your opinion? Because it's, it's very rarely like, slam dunk, this is the best move for my money. And usually it's just because, hey, I've got the money and this is what I want to do. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I always say, I had this thing where I would say, like, you should lease if you're optimizing for a lifestyle. You should buy if you're optimizing for value. All right. Um, you just yeah. answered our question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but you know what? It's it's just not true anymore. This is the crazy part. Oh, right? okay. Wow. So you got a, a little asterisks. switcheroo. A little switcheroo, right? Um, and the reason is because the last couple of years, just things have gotten so inverted. And, 
you know, if you're buying a car and you're paying like, you know, 15 grand over MSRP, like it doesn't really make sense in many cases like that. You're not necessarily buying the best value. And well, if, and if you go back to leasing, right, like what's a lease? Well, a lease is essentially it's comprised of three things. We say in the car business, a net cap cost, which is really the, the price of the car, residual value, which is essentially what the lender thinks the, the car will be worth when you return it. And then it's multiplied by something called a money factor, which is really an interest rate. It's like a derivative of an interest rate. And don't ask me why it's this confusing. It's probably to <laughs> confuse people so that you're like, what I first learned about is I'm like, wait, what? Like, what, like, why is this so complicated? But at the end of the day, that's how leases are actually structured. And so what you had over the last couple of years, actually, is that people that leased these cars, also people that bought, but people that leased their cars, they were actually worth more at the end of the lease. And that's why people didn't return the cars, because the cars were worth a lot more. They, yeah. you know, quote, unquote, could make money. And the newer cars were a lot more expensive, so they didn't want to go buy a new car. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at the end of the day, right, like traditionally, yes, leasing offered, you know, hey, trade in your car every three years, have all these, like, you know, this warranties and services, and everything is covered for you throughout the, the term of the lease and whatnot. Um, and so you just live like it's sort of like a more comfortable lifestyle play. You also had a lower payment traditionally, right? And I think that's the key thing that's changed over the last couple of years where lease payments in many cases are not lower anymore than bu- just buying a car. And so when the economic incentive is not in the picture anymore, why should I lease a car if, you know, the only other incentives are like lifestyle stuff? Now, why are, they, why are lease payments not lower than buying a car? Well, because manufacturers are not incentivized to lease you a car if they can sell you a car. Mm-hmm. And when I only have, when I typically have 10 cars, but now I have two cars, why should I lease you a car? I'm going to want to sell you the car. Sure. And so I'm going to make leasing less attractive. I'll increase the price of leasing, and then you're likely going to buy that car. So that's why I say it's no longer that valid, because the reality is leasing has, you know, has just become a lot less attractive over the last couple of years. Yeah, so it's a matter of what is going on in the market, and it seems like a lot of folks who were who had a lease back during the beginning of the pandemic, they kind of lucked out. Oh yeah, <laughs> for for sure. So does it ever make sense? Actually, so you're talking about leasing. What about leasing an electric vehicle? Because I mean, they certainly seem to be taking off. I, I feel like the the change in the federal tax credit, like that, actually could impact the rate of adoption as you're trying to decide between leasing versus actually purchasing. Yeah, what would you what would you tell a friend or what would you tell a client if they're thinking about switching to electric, whether or not they should buy new, whether or not they should buy used, whether or not they should even consider leasing it? Yeah, look, I think lease lease or buy is a separate question, which I think that comes down to the you know to the specific program offered by the manufacturer. How attractive is the lease relative to the purchase? Does it make sense? What are the terms and whatnot? I, there's no doubt about it that you know electric EVs are are growing, right? It's like at around seven or eight percent market share right now. Some projections are that it's going to peak at twenty, some at fifty, some at hundred. Um, I have no idea. I don't think it's going to get to hundred. I don't think it's going to peak anytime soon. So I think we're going to, you know, and I know that doesn't say much, um, but I think somewhere in the middle is where we're going to land. I can tell you, like, you're seeing that, especially with like coastal elites specifically from um, from clientele that you know we're serving you're seeing that there's a lot more you know interest on electric like that i think the term search yeah the term for electric on carmax like doubled from 2022 to 2023 from february hmm. 2022 to 23 on carmax.com uh, just as an example so like there's no yeah. doubt about it that electric is just on the rise big time all across the board there's more consumer interest in it yeah but i do think that you know it serves or a very specific you know uh, uh, cohorts of customers are interested in that. And yeah. I think that, you know, we're seeing just like your everyday American, 
I mean, we're, we're getting more questions about affordability, right? Like reliability and just much less so on like EV versus, you know, combustion engines. And so I think that it's going to take time until it kind of starts to really get into more with like, you know, mass, the, the, the mass population. But it's definitely moving quickly there. I think, again, lease first buys depends on the OEM and the program offered at the time. Uh, but ultimately, like, I have nothing against electric. I think, you know, it serves a certain type of client and needs. And I think it's here to stay and it's going to grow very quickly. So you just mentioned reliability. And it feels like when you're buying, especially a, a used electric vehicle, it's it throws into motion a whole series of other questions that come along with that purchase. Whereas you kind of know the questions to ask or, or the things to look at when you're buying maybe a, a new internal combustion or excuse me, a used internal combustion engine vehicle. But with you're like, okay, how old is this? How old is the battery? Well, how much is how much range does this actually still have? How how did how does someone navigate that when they're buying? And you just had someone on actually. Uh, on your podcast talking about their startup and how they're kind of they're, they're trying to standardize what it what it looks like for a consumer to approach buying a used EV but how do we do that right now it kind of feels like the wild wild west yes shameless plug car dealership guide podcast number one automotive podcast in the world that's right us. baby <laughs> <laughs> um, and you guys are crushing it as well I mean I see you guys on the ranks just killing it so like lo- love to see the work you guys have done here it's just truly truly commendable Thanks, um, what, what I'll tell you is um Buying an EV is different, bottom line. There's no doubt about it. And there's a lot of companies that are starting to, you know, pop up and they're trying to, you know, make that easier for the consumer. Me as a dealer, I can tell you that it's it's a bit confusing. Like if you're at auction, like I'm unsure, like is this battery good? Is it not good? How do I really know? Um, now, again, a company like you mentioned, like uh, it's called Recurrent, where what they're doing is they're essentially giving you battery uh, battery reports. And so you as a buyer, right, like what's like the one of the most expensive parts of a EV, electric vehicle? Well, the battery. Uh, if the battery goes bad, I mean, it's, you know, it's very expensive. It could be thousands and thousands of dollars um, if it's past the warranty. And so what these companies are trying to do is they're trying to provide you reporting and almost like, you know, in the past, we'd say like Carfax report. Um, this is very different. This is not a vehicle history, but this is more of like, you know, akin or it's it's similar to in the sense of like, this is like a battery report. And so I think it's 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 definitely going to solve a big need in the market. It already is. And it's, you know, just easing that apprehension for consumers that are looking to buy used EVs and having more knowledge and transparency into the, into the history of this battery and its performance to make sure that you're not buying an EV and suddenly you realize that it has a bad battery and you're, you know, thousands in the hole. So I think that's going to be the biggest thing with buying a used EV. It's just understanding the state of the battery. On the flip side, I think there's a lot of benefits where like, you know, you don't have to worry too much about like you don't have like oil changes and just all these other things that, you know, make just a EV fundamentally different than a combustion engine vehicle. But I think they all have their pluses and minuses. EVs do require a bit less service uh, for the most part relative to combustion vehicles. Yeah. Well, so you focusing on the battery there makes me think of range anxiety. So obviously, (laughs) the tech is going to improve, whether it's through companies, uh, like you mentioned, that are going to be able to grade the batteries. But hopefully, we're going to also see the infrastructure increase as well. And it sounds like you're thinking at some point, it might be 50-50, whether it comes to gasoline-powered vehicles compared to electric vehicles. When do you think we will, you know, and we're kind of looking off into the future a little bit here, but at what point do you think the typical American is going to feel comfortable buying an EV, knowing that they have the infrastructure around them that's going to allow them to take some day trips that's going to allow them to get out on the open road where they're not necessarily counting on coming back home and recharging every single night when are we going to reach norway status <laughs> yeah well i think it's you know if battery technology gets us to a point where the range on an ev is just in the 
hundreds and hundreds where people don't have to worry, truly don't have to worry about charging their EV unless they're home, right? That's one solution where you say like, oh, if I, I'm, I'm making a sub, right? But let's say I have a thousand miles I can drive in my EV. No. Great. Like I, yeah, I can, if I could I, thousand yeah. miles, I would get an EV today <laughs> right. and not exactly. think about mileage you see, at all. By yeah. the way, yeah, you see how you responded? You're like, I would get it. I, I wouldn't think about it. <laughs> now on the other side, there's another, there's a different type of solution, which you could say, okay, well maybe not that, but maybe just superchargers are become ubiquitous everywhere. Like imagine mm-hmm. if every gas station in America had a supercharger. Exactly. Right. So like, that's another option. And so I think it just, like, I think we, you know, as a society, we got to keep making progress on the, we need to continue progressing with our infrastructure and make sure that, you know, if EVs have the infrastructure all around and range becomes less and less of a topic and you don't have to, you know, you get to a point where like, you don't think about the range. It's just like, I'm buying an EV because it's, you know, I want to buy an EV and I don't, look, range is going to be there. I'm not even worried about that. I mean, I think that's going to obviously increase adoption even more. And look, the way the industry has been progressing and evolving, I don't think it's, it's, I think it's going to happen one way or another, whether we're going to have superchargers at every corner, or we're going to have these, you know, crazy long range batteries, something. I mean, I think our range is just going to continue improving. And ultimately that's going to translate into increased adoption of EVs. Yeah. My first Nissan Leaf, 82 mile range. And over the six years I had <laughs> oh, it, I mean, it, it went down to, I don't know, like 66, something was like it? that by the time yeah. I sold it. Maybe 40 in the winter. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly. Well, that was one of the problems. And now well, I heard somebody, I think on your podcast, they were talking about how, uh, what was it that you need separate in order to heat heat the car because it yes, would lower. like the- a heat pump. You need a heat pump, EV, that's right, yes. a heat pump in an EV. So yes. look for that if you actually want to <laughs> run your heat during the that winter. Was, yeah, and, that was good. I didn't know that one. So Yeah, I didn't know that either. So uh, all right, car, car dealership guy, such a pleasure having you on, on the podcast. Where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're up to? Gentlemen, it was really good to be on. Uh, some great questions. I'm on Twitter, you know, the, at Guy Dealership. You can or you just write Car Dealership Guy. You can see all my tweets and all my good stuff there. Uh, of course, I mentioned I do have the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is sort of the, the fastest growing part of my brand here, where I just share transparent insights into the car business. So if you're interested, uh, you know, follow us on, on, uh, on Apple or wherever, Spotify, and you can listen to all my stuff. And so it was uh, great being on. Thanks for inviting me. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, this was helpful for people that are trying to have this crazy market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. Joel. Man, it, it was really refreshing, honestly, to get somebody who's kind of like inside the house, you know, like, oh, yeah. like the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> uh, but I feel like CDG, he was able to provide us with a lot of insights. Uh, he's, he's got a pulse on what is going on with the car industry, with a new car industry, with a used car market as well. Yeah. Um, I love getting kind of the, the, the back information on yeah. kind of what's out. We knew a little bit, but man, we're not, we're not as plugged in as he is. So it's, I love hearing kind of totally. the, what, what he, his take on the past three, three and a half years. And then, you know, kind of what to look for moving forward, yeah. what, what trends to expect. I think there's a lot anybody who's in the used or new car market could learn from, from totally. this chat. Yeah. For sure. did, you, did you have a big takeaway from our, our convo today? I did, but there's there's so many. Uh, you one, a, you had a bunch of data. Financing a car, new or used, sucks right now. It's really expensive, <laughs> so come with cash. But I think the biggest thing that stuck out to me was when he said that new cars in general are becoming a luxury good. Not not just luxury cars, mm-hmm. but any new car in general is becoming a luxury good. And I think that's true. I do think that's true. I think he's spot on. When you look at kind of the, the overall average sales price of a new car, it's increased dramatically in the past decade. And so uh, it just it just makes me want to stick to my guns even more when it comes to the best financial choice for most people 
being by used. And even that, like we were talking about, has become fraught with peril in so many more ways. And you have to really look out for yourself and really be a good shopper. But you're, you stand to save a lot of money. And uh, buying new is kind of a luxury choice if you have the money. And that's the avenue you really want to go down. And in particular, if you're going to keep it a long time, it's not the worst thing you could do. But I love how he phrased it. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about luxury cars, he he touched on the fact that because manufacturers, like they're not making as many entry-level vehicles anymore, Mm -hmm. because why would they when the margins are so nice when it comes to the true luxury cars? Well, there's only only so many chips to go around. Why not stick them in like literal microprocessor chips? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. That go in the vehicles. But uh, yeah, that that really stood out to me. And also like another theme or, or takeaway I think can be to like if you don't care about cars the less choosy the less picky that you can be that is going to allow you to to snag the best deal yeah uh, whether it comes to cars where there's just a lot of inventory because that's the thing folks a lot of times they they go into car shopping knowing what kind of car they're looking for and well there's a lot less flexibility uh, if you already if you're if you've narrowed it down to a make and model versus like he said uh, you know Buicks literally rotting on the lot. Right. If you are flexible and you can find a vehicle that you know it's got decent reliability reports, but if the dealer or uh, even that then trickles down to the used market, that's going to lead to lower prices overall. And so if you can be less choosy, less picky, I think you know you're you're going to absolutely be able to get the best deal. That's the exact uh, advice we give when it comes to travel. Right, it's it's pick your destination yeah, yeah. <laughs> after the fact. Let the deal kind of drive you. And I think if you're less picky about, oh, I just need this specific color. Even think about that. If you the the more specific, the more choosy you are, then there's a whole lot less likelihood that you're going to be able to get a deal. Totally. Yep. Yep. So I feel like that's a good just overall philosophy on, on maybe how folks should consider approaching their next vehicle purchase. But let's get to the beer, Joel. You and I we enjoyed an Allagash Hop Reach. IPA. What were your thoughts on this IPA? Okay, I was going to say this one was a bit perfumey. I don't know if you got that oh, on really? the taste and on the nose. Yeah. Um, but give it another sniff. Had yeah. like botanical kind of vibes going on in my mind, almost like a like a gin or something? some sort of tropical garden with yeah, oh. maybe gin infused tri- tropical garden. Are that, you saying that away. because there's like flowers and florals? All right. drawn all over the label. Maybe that's subtly influencing <laughs> my take. I don't know. <laughs> your, <Nope>. sub, your <laughs> subconscious has been impacted by the graphics. I think it does. It it it, it has just more of like a perfumey botanical sort of vibe going on so maybe um no maybe they just made the label based on what it tastes like matt perhaps i'm not gonna argue with you at all on that like we all in- taste what we taste but um my thoughts were that this we, was we all know my taste buds are <laughs> inferior to yours. no 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 like i'm not gonna say that you didn't taste that because you know like we all have our different filters that we run things through but as far as the general style this wasn't like a west coast ipa this was because it wasn't overly bitter resiny, piney. Uh, it, it also wasn't uh, like a New England hazy where you've got like those orange juice with those sharp hop notes. This was just like a middle of the road, solid India pale ale. It was refreshing and I'm glad that you and I got to share this Allagash beer here on the show. I will say this. I love Allagash. They're better at their white Belgian styles. Their farmhouse. That one's great. Or they're better at yeah barrel aged oak aged sort of sort of beers as well. Uh, this this is not my favorite from them, but I love Allagash as yeah. a brewery, so I was more than happy to try this one. If I was if I were to rate this one on Untapped, I'd give it a solid three seven five there you go. four. All right, that's a good yeah. beer. Solid middle of the road for yeah, sure. Exactly. Yep. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. <laughs> uh, for folks who want show notes, links to car dealership guys. Twitter and some of the other uh, assets that he mentioned, you can find that up on our website at howtomoney.com. There's just tons of money-saving information in addition to the podcast up there on our website as well. So, Matt, that's going to do it. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. 
Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 